You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, everybody, deep into June, June 6th. How's everybody doing today? We have a great show on the big show today. We're going to drill down into the lessons learned from the big Ontario election. I'll get into that. Doug Ford's campaign manager, Corey Tonight, will be in studio with me. How did the big blue win happen? And then Scott Reed is going to bat, clean up. Is the Liberal Party dead in Ontario? Is this the end of it? Or is there a resurrection plan? Didn't work the first time. I think dead's probably overstating it. But do they have problems? Then we'll, we'll take your texts and calls. It is, of course, the 78th anniversary since D-Day. We spent a lot of time on Juno Beach. You know that, Tim Cook. I think the greatest historian in Canada, written 12 books. If, you, if you've read any of his books, you'll know that you almost relive what happened in the Great War, the Second World War. But, of course, it is the anniversary of D-Day where 14,000 Canadians landed at Juno Beach. And we'll talk about that. Never forget, lest we forget. I was tweeting out pictures of some of the men who lost their lives on Juno Beach. Remarkable, remarkable acts of bravery. Uh, also, a former CIA officer, Alex Finley, will join us. She's also known as the Yacht Watcher. Why? Because she tracks Russian oligarchs' yachts so then they can be picked off. That's right. The Yacht Watcher, the former CIA officer who tracks Russian oligarchs as they try to hide their money and their yachts. We're going to talk about her. How do you find these yachts? Where are they? Where are they trying to take them? Yacht Watch. I love that. And then we'll uh, end the show, as I always do, with a smile, we're going to meet someone who just broke the world's record for most jump, bungee jumps in 24 hours. 765 bungee jumps. 765 bungee jumps in a day? You do the math on that. You're going to meet them. I don't know if their brain is scrambled, but we'll find out. So Friday we're, 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 is the morning after in Ontario. And I was on air uh, late with a great crew from CTV, Stephanie and um, um, Nathan hosting a phenomenal broadcast out of Toronto. I flew down to Toronto for it. I was part of a, a really great team there. I want to thank the CTV folks for putting that together uh, as we tracked that election. And the election was no surprise. My bingo card said about 82 seats. It was 83 seats for the Conservatives. I did not see the essentially decimation of the Liberal Party, that they still don't have official party status. Now, on air, my pen exploded, and I got a lot of Twitter action about the blue hand. And my body just it kind of now, after all these years of political antennae, so when I something's happening in the political, things are going blue, my body starts to go blue, so my hand goes blue. No, a pen exploded. I couldn't get it off. Which is fine. It was very metaphoric. And then after the election, we, I, I flew back. We did question period. And then I took off for a weekend of whitewater canoeing with my buddies on the Madawaska River. If you've ever got a chance to, to, to uh, paddle the Madawaska. There's a great outfitter, Don, in Griffiths, Ontario. 
We've paddled this river many times. Great whitewater um, canoeing, great camping, high water, beautiful. Uh, take some lessons if you don't know how to whitewater canoe. There is nothing like just getting out after you're totally immersed in the reality of you know politics and the, it's been a really busy year as we're as we're deeper into June and I feel like when you jump into the river on the canoe trip, which we do every year, same guys. These are my best buddies. I've known them forever, and. Um, we do this weekend trip of whitewater canoeing, sometimes more, but, you know, we all have kids, so it's hard to get away for more than that time. Um, but as soon as we jump in the river, and no, we did not dump this year, um, it's like the summer starts, and you're swimming, and it's great. And the bugs weren't so bad, and I mean, they were on the portages, but it was fantastic. And things start to settle into perspective. I don't know if you have a, a, a one weekend, maybe it's your May 2-4 weekend where you think, oh, get my summer starts. My summer kind of technically starts on the canoe trip. Usually the first week of June, sometimes the end of May if it's really cool. And, and then you start thinking, okay, we're winding it up. And it was a hell of a year. You know, elections. But the thing that was really settling in my mind was the Ontario election because things shifted. And I'm going to speak to Corey tonight, the uh, mastermind behind this campaign, in just a minute. But I also spoke to the pollster behind it who worked with him, um, Nick Cavallos. And, and Nick said to me uh, on, a, on a text back and forth as I was asking about it, this could be a permanent realignment in Ontario. And what does he mean by that? One of the great takeaways of the 83-seat majority for Doug Ford was not just that the NDP won 31 and the Liberals won 8, is two things. One, the Liberal vote is unbelievably inefficient. They had the same popular vote as the NDP, but they only got 8 seats versus 31. But that Doug Ford and his team managed to pull 8 private sector unions across the line and endorse them. And and Corey's going to talk about this, but this is a real realignment. What's happening here, and I, I want people to understand this, is the labor movement classically belonged to the left. The labor movement belonged to the NDP and sometimes the liberals. And they actively, actively and materially impacted elections because they could get out vote, they worked, they pulled vote, they worked to get out vote, and they also would harm the conservative cause. So if you're a progressive conservative in Ontario, the union vote was uh, a huge part of your opponent and their arsenal. And what's happened is there a split between the public sector unions, those unions like teachers, those unions that uh, are working, who represent way more workers, by the way, than the public sector unions, or than the private sector unions. But... Those unions who work for governments and teachers, they are unions, the public sector unions, that the conservatives said are disbelieved. This may not be true, but I'm going to tell you how this is working. They believe they are disconnected from getting things built in a country, how the economy really works, what is really happening, that when the economy is bad, they will still protest and want wage increases. They are disconnected from the economic realities. And they're very urban. And that vote has become the NDP slash liberal vote. They fight over that. But there are 500,000 workers right now in these eight private sector unions, construction, carpentry, 
electricians, pipe fitters, who are private sector unions, and their jobs depend on building things, roads, bridges, factories, cars. And those people go up and down with their economy, and they want a government that wants to build things. And the conservative bet was if we could drag these private sector unions out, listen to this, you know, they're elected with under 2 million votes, 1.7 million votes. Those, those, elect, those unions represent 500,000 people. That's a material amount of people. Those people are pulling out votes. That means that the NDP who always have trouble pulling votes and the liberals who couldn't get out their vote because they didn't have the horses, they don't have official party status, they don't have the money, they don't have the organization, they can't get anyone out. No one voted for them. Their vote collapsed. Part of the reason it collapsed was that they, the conservatives pulled their army off the field and took them for themselves. And the question that Nick Cavallis said to me is, is this a permanent realignment? And if it is, if private sector construction unions go to the right, then the progressive left has a real trouble. And that's the real deep down story here. Is there a, a permanent realignment? And how did that happen? Doug Ford called it a new coalition. Is it permanent or not? So what we're going to do, because I really think, you know, when you have these big shifts, you got to understand them. Let me bring on Corey tonight, the former director of communication for Stephen Harper. But he was the campaign manager for the Doug Ford campaign. He's going to join us. And then Scott Reed will join us after on what is the Liberal Party over in Ontario and other places. And how does this matter federally for all the provinces? So let's take a break. We'll be right back. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Uh, Election night in Ontario, uh, a pen exploded in my hands during power play. My hand started to turn blue and then the rest of the province followed suit. 83 seats for Doug Ford. The NDP 31, the Liberals, still not official party status. We'll get to that if this is the end of the Liberal Party. Always be careful when we have, there's a political eulogy, politics changes. But what is happening? I told you before the break that uh, one of the key members of the team, Nick Cavallos, and I were exchanging texts, and he said, we are looking for a permanent realignment in Ontario. And that's the real story. Whenever you see a big political win, there's always a story behind it. And the most important thing about a win is... How do you make already the campaign is not thinking about what we did. It's how can we keep this new coalition and new coalition is the term that Doug Ford used. What is it? Uh, let's find out someone who's been the mastermind behind this along with Doug Ford and, and the crew that's Corey tonight, the former director of communications for Stephen Harper, but also the campaign manager for Doug Ford. He's in studio with me. I guess you've probably finished the sleeping, it's been a weekend, you're, what's going on? Are you still, got, is your voice back yet? Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's still a little rough, but uh, it's, that's called, you know, uh, 12 hours a day on the phone talking to people for a month. Now, now, when someone wins the Stanley Cup, there's always, you pop the corks and there's a big party. For people out there, is there a blowout? You guys have worked hard on the campaign, 28 days. Is there one night where you, t- you and the team, you tie it, it's on. You guys lose it, it's a party. Uh 
Uh, it's kind of the opposite. Like I think uh, uh, when you when you have the kind of uh, you know blindingly drunk sort of party, it's when you lose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I see. I, 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 I was in bed by midnight on uh, oh really? Night. Uh, I I find it's more of a relief than it is euphoric uh, at the end of one of these things. And you know everyone has uh, been working very very hard, and 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 it's over, and uh, it's kind of kind of like the end of a running race or something, right? Where, where you just kind of want to collapse for for a little bit. So but the what, alcohol what... intake ratio is the losing. See, so the liberals may have had more of the alcohol yeah. intake this this year than their conservatives. What what was the key here? Um, you know, Doug Ford two is different than Doug Ford one He changed uh, two days before the election. He's got his arms with you know around Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau doesn't campaign with the liberals. He basically says, "Hey, let's make huge investments in auto." Um, Doug Ford. Uh, is has a budget that's spending as more than a liberal budget. Doug Ford has got eight private sector unions, du- and there's low voter turnout. Of these factors, what what is the secret sauce here? Well, some of them are related. I'll, I'll maybe take on the, the the voter turnout question first because it's one that I've I've seen some commentary around. Generally, voter turnout is really high when you're in a uh, when you're in a change election. When when you want to replace the government, that's when voter turnout goes way up. And and anyone managing a campaign will tell you if you're on the opposition side and voter turnout's looking like it's going to be really high, that's generally an indication the government's going to change. Right. And so low it, turnout favors the incumbent. Yeah. So last election, uh, not this most recent one, but the in 2018. Uh, uh, we had the record turnout for the province. We had 58%. And, and you could see that. Like the, the Liberal Party went from government to not even being a party. It was uh, you know, akin to the 1993 uh, thumping that the federal progressive conservatives got uh, uh, that uh, elected the Gretchen government. It was that level of, uh, I guess, desire to change the government. And so that's why it was very high. When, you know, one of the... the Big factors going into this is, and, you know, doing focus testing and doing lots of polling and research is even, even our opponents, even people who are going to vote Liberal or NDP, were very comfortable with Doug Ford continuing to be premier. And So, but that changed. So why? Like, what had happened there? Well, I think a lot of that changed through COVID where uh, people got to see a lot more of the premier and he actually ended up, you know, having his own brand. I, I would say that Ford changed. It's less that, that the premier changed and more that people got to know who he was. A lot of the, the view of who Doug Ford was uh, in 2018 was informed by uh, the political reputation of his brother, Rob Ford. But stuff that he did to the city of Ontario or the, you know, or the city of Toronto, rather. I mean, he had it seemed like he he realized that governing in a pandemic, he just kind of realized, look, Divisions aren't helping people right now. Politi- yeah. Those kind of old political divisions are less helpful. Now, there was a lot of divisions anyway, but he didn't seem to uh, use them. He wasn't wedging the way he used to. Well, I, I think for for many people through COVID, but I think many people generally when they become government, the job changes. You know, you go from a, a situation where you're campaigning and it's about, you know, really having a division in the public between, you know, are, are you – agreeing with our approach or you disagreeing with our approach. It's very binary. Mm. Um, but when you're in government, you're judged on on the outcomes at the end of the day. And 
you know, if you're going to spend all your time fighting with uh, municipal level of government, if you're spending all your time fighting with the federal government, you know, you're not going to get a lot done. And ultimately, you're going to be judged on, and I think the government was judged on, accomplishments. So yeah. if you're looking at the city of Toronto, for instance, the largest uh, subway projects in the history of the country, you know, subway projects that probably should have been built in the 1980s, uh, finally moving ahead, finally happening. You know, uh, uh, but you can look at, at many other areas. You know, the, the healthcare system uh, that uh, existed in Ontario in 2018, and, and this is the responsibility of both parties over long periods mm. of time, uh, was underinvested in. And you know, one of the reasons why you're seeing government spending higher now coming out of the pandemic is the cost of building additional hospital capacity is way less of a cost to the economy than having to go through another lockdown. And Things people like get that. it. Yeah. What, what, tell me about the role, just connect the, the, the low voter turnout. And what I think, and you and I have discussed this, I'm speaking with Corey tonight, the campaign manager for Doug Ford and the former decom for the prime minister, Stephen Harper, the private sector unions. Tell me about that shift. And is this a permanent real, how did it happen? And is it a permanent realignment in Ontario? Well, I think it's a result of, of, a lot of work over the last four years with uh, with those unions uh, to solve some of the problems that they were having, which are important to solve not just for those unions. They're important to solve for the entire province. One of the greatest drags on our economic growth, not just in Ontario but, but, but nationally, is our inability to get uh, the number of workers that we need to do all the work that needs to be done. And we can solve some of that through recognizing foreign credentials and immigration, but you can't fully solve it unless you actually start doing a much better job training the people who are already here. And you have a situation where I think, uh, you know, a lot of our colleges system is, has not done a great job of graduating students in, uh, in the skill areas that, where the jobs are. And I think the private sector unions in particular have done a much better job of doing that. And so you saw a lot of investments in, in, in union-run training facilities, uh, which have been doing a phenomenal job. Uh, in, in, in getting those workers that our economy needs. But our ability to do that, to you know, recruit and train workers uh, that, that marry up with what our, our economy is demanding, uh, and this in a huge number of areas, is, is really essential to the growth of our economy and our, our, our mutual prosperity. So, so is this a per? I got a couple minutes here. Is it a, is it a permanent shift politically now? Are these how important was it that these unions went uh, to PC and is that is that a lock? Does that change things? Well, nothing's ever a lock. You have to continue to earn people's support if you want to right. have it. And uh, I think there is potential there for this to be a a long term shift, and that's certainly in the interest of the premier and and all of those involved with the campaign. But I think also in in you know in the province more generally that that be a more permanent feature because uh, it would mean that we're responding to the needs of, of those workers in that side of our economy. Now, it was very meaningful if you're looking at southwestern Ontario and northern Ontario, like we won a, a seat in Windsor. We haven't done that in almost 100 years. So you know, that, that is a very meaningful shift. That's all off the bottom line of the NDP and onto, onto the positive right. side of our, our column. Corey Tanaik is the campaign manager. That's a, I don't think... If you're in politics, that's as big a win as you can get. It's probably as perfect a campaign as you can run from a technical point of view. And uh, Corey Tonight's there. And listen, he's been there for the big losses and the big wins, and that's the way this game works. Okay, is this the end of the Liberal Party? Scott Reed's going to jump on, and we're going to debate that. Like, where do they go, or is this permanent? 
Uh, we'll take a break on the Evan Solomon Show. Lots more to come. Stay with us. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. How's everyone doing? Uh, The uh, former CIA officer and now yacht watcher. She tracks Russian oligarchs' yachts as they try to sail around to find a safe haven. Will join us. Tim Cook. I think the greatest historian will, will will talk to us about a day, June 6, 1944, D-Day, Juno Beach. And we will mark that. And then we will talk to the man who just literally broke the record for most bungee jumps in a 24-hour period, over 700. But a man who is fearlessly um, jumping off cliffs, sometimes without a rope at all, is Scott Reed, And he is here to talk about the liberals who in Ontario, thought they might be bungee jumping. Sure, in 2018, we went over the cliff, but once we hit bottom, we're going to bounce back up and have official party status, just like a bungee jumper. And it turned out that they were one of those moments where the bungee cord does not work, and they are dangling at the bottom of a crevasse. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former comms director for Prime Minister Harper, is going to tell us, is the liberal brand in Ontario dead or not? Hello, sir. Hello, hello. Just a, um, uh, one small point of clarification. I didn't yeah. actually work for Prime Minister Harper. I worked for Prime Minister Did, did I say Martin? Did um, I say Harper? You did. You said Harper. Yeah. You said, but that's fine. They're I know so Corey Tanek, who, who, who was the director of communications for Prime Minister Harper and read Doug Ford's campaign. I know he's coming up. He was He'll just tell on. You how they he was just on. He was just on. I missed him. Yeah, yeah, he was just on. Corey just left the studio. He's good enough to come in person. I know you're busier. But Corey came in person. He just, and he was the former decom to Harper. You're the former decom to Martin. uh, And and he ran the campaign. So, yes, you're right. So, but that's why you're coming on to hit cleanup. There we go. And he was the one who saw the bungee cord on the uh, liberals so that uh, instead of bouncing back, they just uh, fell to the uh, uh, deep uh, and hard granite below. Yes. So tough times for the what Ontario happened? Liberal Party. First, first um, let's say, before we get to what should happen, what happened? Yeah. I think it's plain as day, uh, and it's in the numbers, as it always is. Uh, Ontario Liberals did not vote. And so not only did we see an enormously low voter turnout overall, but we saw that those who self-identified as Liberals, one quarter to one-fifth of them either voted for another party or didn't vote at all. And that's a big problem, because if you're in the business of resurrection, you cannot afford uh, to leave any of the congregation uh, outside of that effort. And, and, you know, I think, you know, ultimately a combination of what the liberals were peddling and who was doing the peddling as the leader, um, simply didn't connect with not just Ontario voters, but didn't even connect with liberals. And that's the minimum test that must get met. David Hurley, who who you do the great, um, um, curse of politics podcast with wrote in the Toronto star, The results of the Ontario election came as a terrible shock and disappointment to Liberals. A shock? Why? Didn't they expect this? 
Corey tonight was telling me, look, we spent like 28 million dollars. The Liberals had like three and a half million. They, we did two million door knocks and four million uh, drops of communication. They did like 500,000. How did they expect to win? Well, I mean, I think they hope that they would catch the zeitgeist and and spring from third to first. But at minimum, and this is where I think the shock occurs. At minimum, people looked at this as a rebound, um, a rebound election. That you know, 2018, it had been you know 15 years or more of McGinty and then. Um, Kathleen Wynne, there were a lot of unpopular moves. Um, and you felt like, well, that was surely that that was that's 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 the bottom one. From here we will bounce back. And that the brand, the Ontario Liberal brand, just the, the brand liberal in Ontario, still quite persistent and successful, obviously, at the federal level. So people are voting liberal, last year voted liberal, that that would propel you. And what yeah. we learned was that liberals didn't even vote liberal. And uh, or at least yeah, liberals front. thought they had like a double minor, four minutes, four years in the box show bounce back but turns out they got a game misconduct so what the liberals couldn't pull the vote what do they do now scott if you're a liberal what what's that what what do you do when you look at the entrails of two elections without official party status there's a bunch of things that obviously need to get done but the first and most obvious thing is what went most wrong with this election if you didn't get your own vote out then that at minimum tells you and i don't want to kick the guy when he's down steve del duca is a good earnest hard-working guy enormously hard-working but he did not connect he didn't connect with voters and he didn't even connect with liberal voters so what's the secret sauce well it starts with a big healthy pinch of leadership get a leader who's got snap crackle and pop who can animate your vote who can animate interest in a wider uh, group but of people. Who, how do you get that in a party that's going to be broke? I mean it. That's going to be hard. Oh, don't worry about that, man. Don't worry about that. You know what? It's, it's a liberal party. Okay, the Liberal Party is, you know, people still believe that that brand is strong and it's resilient and that there will be opportunities for it to reclaim power. And there are plenty of people that want to be in government. So there's lots of talent out there. I think the biggest thing that the Liberal Party in Ontario needs to do right now is sit tight. Do not panic. Don't say, oh, my God, we better have a rush leadership. We better pick one of the eight people who are in caucus. We need a leaders in the legislature. We, we should merge with right the NDP. Away. What about that? We should. We Merge the, the progressive. NDP. Terrible idea. Doesn't work. It's not different tribes, different political traditions. Liberals are a brokerage party, fundamentally pragmatic. Call it opportunistic if you like and want to be signal. They are not an ideological party. At their heart, the NDP are an ideological party and an ideological movement. So those things don't mesh. There's no such big tent thing called progressives that include, but for party label, both liberals and NDP. That's not the reality. Very different kinds of people who are motivated to be involved and engaged in politics for largely different reasons. So, you know, to me, well, they're partnering the in federal politics. Well, they're partnering, but they're not going to. And frankly, I think there's some drawbacks to that, but they're not trying to uh, merge. And you got to be very careful if you're liberals. You know, if you abandon uh, if, if you abandon your economic centrist uh, territory, someone will take it away from you. And a centrist party hmm. that is not in the play becomes something that has no purpose. And so for me, the next election is absolutely an existential threat for the Ontario Liberal Party. It must win must at minimum return and reclaim uh, official opposition, or it could be history. And so it's why I say start with leadership. We all know leadership drives politics. We all know leadership drives people's interest. you got to start with a good, strong leader, somebody with charisma and the ability to connect. Is there someone, someone out there in story. the firmament, uh, Scott Reed? Is there someone you say, here? here's who they need? And 
and, and, and she or he is in the firmament right now? I don't have a name. I'll give you three characteristics that are necessary. Okay. They got to be a fantastic performer. Okay. They got to be able to look into the lights and light up. Okay. That's thing number one. Thing number two, right? They need uh, to be strong when it comes to fundraising because money is going to matter for all the reasons you say, right? That's a behind the scenes skill that combines with the in front of the camera skill that I just mentioned. And the final thing, and this is most important of all, right? Absolutely most important of all, right? They've got to have a bit of celebrity. If they are not already an established celebrity, they have to have the ability, the aura of celebrity, the capacity capacity to catch on and be a celebrity. That is the reality of politics today. Picking a nobody who has awkward in front of camera skills will get you nowhere. We've been through that movie. Bluntly, we just went through it on June 2nd. So, you know, don't rush and go, oh my God, let's pick one of the eight people that's available to us. Do not narrow your choices when the consequence of a bad choice is the end of the party as we know it. Low voter turnout, I mean, liberals couldn't pull a vote. I got a minute here. Is that a sign that it was just not a change election? Is that a sign that the PCs have moved to the center and swiped that liberal vote? Or they just didn't have the capacity to pull their vote? All of that. Most important of all, it means that neither opposition party, including the liberals, but the NDP also, neither one of those parties made the case for change. They did not begin a year ago saying, here's what you should be concerned about about Doug Ford. He's telling you one story about himself. Here's another story about him. They didn't even compete to put Doug Ford on his back foot. And without that, as you say, it wasn't a change election. Without a change election, voter turnout is going to be low because engagement and interest is going to be low. It was on them. People blame Corey. They think, oh, cynical political operative. He kept the vote low. No, blame the opposition. The Liberals and NDP didn't make the case for change. Scott Reid, you're good looking and smart. It's a lethal combination. I'll take a break. I'm going to take calls next about just this. Stay with us. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, here we are. There are so many amazing stories going on uh, right now. First of all, the Conservative Party federally is going to smash records. Like when Justin Trudeau signed up 150,000 members when he was first uh, becoming the prime minister and running for the job, it was like, oh, this is crazy. The liberals have free membership. 150,000 members is a huge number. He's awash. It's massive. People are turning out. Pierre Polyevra has now signed up 311,000. Paid members, 15 bucks a shot. Patrick Brown says he's done 150,000. We don't even know about Jean Chéret and the others. They have like almost 200,000 already. These are massive numbers. So something's happening here. Like the, The ground is shifting. The ground shifted in Ontario. Doug Ford wins 83 seats. The Liberals don't get official party status. I ask you this because federally this matters. Look, the Liberals have been in power for... Seven and a half years, There'll be it will be close to a decade if this coalition with the NDP holds. But in Ontario, Scott Reid just said, if the Liberals don't win again, it's existential. In other words, it's, it's do or die. 
1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. Is the Liberal Party in jeopardy in Ontario or is it worse? Is it on death's doorstep? What about the low voter turnout? I'll just keep this dirgy music on. Like Star Wars, John Williams. Why the low voter turnout? All right, we can kill the music now. Why aren't people voting? Now, I know Corey tonight, the campaign manager for Doug Ford, told us earlier on the program, it's because people didn't want to change election. Still, why not? People are spending your money. Don't you want to say in how the government spends your money? Don't you realize people in Ukraine are dying for this right? I cannot imagine why people aren't voting. So text me or... Or call me one eight five five six three three ten ten. I just want to know: Liberal Party dead in Ontario, or, or you want to talk about low voter turnout? Oh, that was Chopin's funeral march. Didn't it sound like Star Wars? Don Don, play that again, would you? Isn't that like Don Don Don? Like the Empire's coming? Do that again. Give me the the funeral march. You know, didn't you just have it? All right, well, we'll get it back. Evan, I just can't believe that honesty, integrity, good character has no place in the next leader the Liberal Party should be. Celebrity, that's exactly why I will never vote Liberal again. They care more about what everything looks like than doing right. This is a comment on Scott Reed. Evan, the Liberal Party is and will be the ruin of Canada. They cannot win again. Nick from Ottawa, what's up? Yeah, the problem here, Evan, is very simple. People are fed up uh, voting. They have no choice. You know, they have, uh, there's no choice. Yes, we have privileges, uh, which uh, Ukraine doesn't have. But here is the problem. The, le- uh, the Liberal Party is extremely to the left. And, you know, it can be in the middle, but extremely to the left. So people are voting now. Let's, let's try. We have seven years of this. Let's try it to the right. And... The funniest thing is it's happening even in the federal, because if there was an election right now, and Justin Trudeau knows this, that's why he paired up with the NDP, because if there was an election right now with a minority government, he knows he would lose completely. The well, I don't know. Is- they just had an election. I mean, how, how often do you want an election? He just won an election. It's a minority government. Uh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Ah, oh, he did. I mean, come on, man. He won it. He's, he's in power. Democracy is democracy is this: when you have a minority government and yeah. you don't have a majority government, you go out there and vote. If we want Trudeau back there or another party there, we vote. It's a minority government. We have to vote, or else democracy is dead in Canada. And that's what I see. It's happening. That's why you don't see people voting anymore. They're fed up. That's all I have to say. All right, I appreciate it. I, 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 you just think if people are fed up, they would vote. Like, I appreciate the call. I, I actually think, Nick, to be candid, I think you got to, I mean, maybe there's people who don't believe the system is working, so they don't vote. But literally, Corey Tonight, the campaign manager for Doug Ford, said, we pulled our vote. People turned up to vote for us because they are satisfied. And, 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 and when people are fed up, there's high voter turnout. High vote when people were fed up with Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals, there was high voter turnout, fifty-eight percent. So, being fed up should make people like like Nick. You're saying the opposite of what Doug Ford's successful campaign manager says. When people are fed up, they do vote. When they're not fed up, they don't vote because they're happy. Mike, what's up? 
Hey, Evan, pleasure to speak to you again. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, living in uh, Windsor uh, and uh, Essex County, uh, yeah, we lost, uh, we lost a, a, a red one and an orange one uh, to uh, the Blues. Uh, we, we only have, uh, we only have uh, Lisa Gretzky in Windsor West right now as NDP, and uh, and uh, it's just, I, I think that just the platforms of uh, the Liberals. Uh, and speaking of that, uh, when Del Duca was uh, transport minister uh, under uh, the Wynn government, uh, he came down here to tour Highway 3, which is a main southeast corridor between Windsor and Leamington, and it runs by a bunch of other towns as well. And uh, he said, oh, we're going to do something, and he never did. And then Ford gets in, and he does something. They're twinning it right now because it's been a very dangerous two-lane highway, and there's been a lot of fatalities uh, and uh and you know, like when it comes to Andrea Horvath, I mean, I mean, I used to like her, but uh, the like the platforms of the libs and uh, and uh, the NDP just weren't there. Like Andrea was right, right. basically like a twenty-year-old car that just went through a rollover, and it's not fixable. And uh, you know, and Del Duca actually never won a seat, so uh, it's. Uh, you know, actually, I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised the Liberals actually gained one seat. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't, Mike. I appreciate the call. They did not get uh, official party status, and I appreciate the call, Mike. Uh, someone just texted me: "Voting is for fools that choose to be ruled." What? That is the most not only cynical but is inaccurate. Not voting is for fools who choose to be ruled. Voting is not for fools. Voting actually, you get to choose your government. Not voting is for fools who choose to be ruled. I don't understand that. Evan, low voter turnout was because there's nobody worth voting for. That Now, that may be true. Charles, what's up? Uh, hello? You, I'm on? Hi. Yeah, you're on, Charles. Go okay. for it. My, my philosophy is uh, voting should be mandatory. And if you don't vote, you get charged 10% of your gross yearly household income as a fine. Because everybody's going to lose their, their, vote, their right to vote. If nobody votes, it'll be a dictatorship after that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Australia has mandatory voting. There is a penalty, first-time penalty offenders. I think it's like 20 bucks. It goes up to 50 bucks. It's not that bad. But they have like 85 95% turnout. So um, I, I wouldn't – I disagree with your fine, that well, high you, of a fine, but I like your idea of mandatory voting. Well, for them to go vote. You don't vote, you get penalized. It'll, yeah. they'll, they'll think twice about it. Yeah, Charles, I appreciate the call. I don't mind that. I, I, I don't mind mandatory voting. It works in Australia. Why is that so bad? I mean, we have low voter turnout. We need to engage in our democracy. Let's not complain unless at least we engage. Get in the argument. Get in the game. Um, let's take a break. It's 78 years ago, people fought for the right for freedom on D-Day. We'll talk about that today. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency, Transocean, 
said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. It was the five beaches of Normandy. Across a 50-mile stretch, Sword Beach, Juno Beach, Gold Beach, Omaha Beach, Utah Beach, those are the code names the Allies used for what was, of course, D-Day, the largest invasion the world had ever seen at that point. And the Canadians landed at Juno Beach, June 6, 1944. And the sounds of that day, the battle sounds were not triumphant. It was brutal. And it was devastating. Hundred and fifty thousand Allied troops, fourteen thousand Canadians at Juno Beach. The Royal Canadian Navy had hundred and ten ships, ten thousand sailors, the RCAF, fifteen fighters and fighter bomb squad squadrons. The casualties enormous. Lest we forget, we have spent a lot of time trying to protect Juno Beach from a condominium development on this program. But Tim Cook, the Canadian War Museum historian, the author of 12 books on Canadian military history, has done more than that. He has spent a lifetime trying to remember the Great War and the Second World War and Canada's contribution and tell the story without the mythology. And he joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello, Evan. Thanks for having me on the show again. Boy, oh boy, 78 years ago, Tim, and and you've written so much about the two two world wars and, and others, but can you, lest we forget, and I was tweeting out pictures of the young men whose lives were, by the way, not all young men, 47-year-old men, 27, 27 20, 21, 18-year-old men, just just walk us through what happened on, on, on for the Canadians. What was that invasion like? I just want you to just tell the story of the Juno Beach invasion. Well, you set it up nicely, and I think it's worth remembering we had Canadians there in the Air Force and the Navy and our, our parachutists who dropped behind enemy lines, but the main landing, the forced landing, was on Juno Beach, as you know, and Canadians, about five regiments, uh, landed in that first wave at about 8 o'clock to 8.10, and I was thinking about them at that time today, 78 years later. Uh, and as they were coming in, they could hear the German machine gun fire pinging off the landing craft. The Germans had been pounded with bombers and naval shells, but not a single fortification had been destroyed and suppressed. And imagine what it was like for those young guys, and as you rightly say, middle-aged guys, um, as they hit the beaches, as the doors dropped, as they surged out, some... Uh, torn apart by uh, German machine gun fire, MG-42s firing four or 500 bullets a minute, mortar bombs dropping, shells exploding, and somehow those Canadians fought their way forward across several hundred meters of Juneau Beach. And I know you've been there, Evan. I've been there. You feel the weight of history, and you think back on a day like this where so many Canadians somehow found the courage, the resilience, maybe the muscle memory to charge forward, sometimes over the bodies of their friends, friends they'd known for years and they've trained with, uh, driving forward, uh, throwing grenades, shooting at the Germans, eventually driving off that beach, but at a terrible cost. Why were the German fortifications, the pillboxes, so intact? What happened? 
Well, they were thick. They're concrete. Of course, the Germans had four years to plan for this. They knew the Allies would be coming back. They knew the Allies would storm those beaches. Um, there had been attempts in the past. You and I have talked about Dieppe on the August 19, 1942, a failure against a fortified port. So the Allies learned to try to take uh, to not hit a fortified town or city, and yet the Germans had uh, miles of barbed wire, machine guns, mortars, artillery, and concrete bunkers, some of which are still there, three to four feet thick. And so despite massive uh, bombardments um, from uh, huge high-caliber shells, they just couldn't crack the concrete. And I, I have spoken to veterans, as I knew, know you have, Evan, um, and I've asked them, what was it like to be on the landing craft to hear uh, returning fire, bullet fire, coming off the steel plating and realizing, having that dawning realization that the Germans are ready and it will be a frontal assault? And, uh, one veteran just shrugged his shoulders and said, we prayed. And of course, uh, they did much more than that. They prayed, but they, they, they found ways to to somehow overcome the carnage, and as you said at the top, the brutality on that beach. The brutality is what, you know, victory masks the brutality. Um, but I was just, I spent the morning gazing at pictures of some of the young guy, tweeting out a bunch of them, just because they're, they're, they're just people. They're just young men. Yeah. They look so invincible, right? They look so yeah. perfect. They look so strong. They look so, it's impossible to die. Yeah. And yet they did. And then they got a perfunctory letter home, not because the government didn't care, but because the battle raged ever onward. What? So tell me how long it took before they actually, um, let's talk about how long the battle raged while they were landing, the casualties, and then what they had to do before they got their first kind of moment to stop and the Germans shooting stopped. When did that happen? It was a pretty relentless day, and, um, uh, you know, Juneau Beach is a big beach, and as you said, there were five beaches over 50 miles. What I always say is, isn't it, isn't it remarkable that Canada was shoulder to shoulder with the Americans and the British, the two big powers? We were there, and we shouldn't forget that, but it was those Canadians at the sharp end. It took most of them about two hours to get off the beach, fighting the whole time, uh, explosions, death, and carnage. And then they pushed through those defenses, but then they still kept fighting. They fought throughout the 6th uh, of June, pushing inwards. And in fact, the Canadians pushed deeper than any other Allied force, the Americans or the British. They fought on the 7th. On the 8th, they faced massive counterattacks from some of the very best German armored forces, the 12th Panzer SS. These were Hitler youth who had been raised with that crazed ideology and they fought viciously from the 9th and the 10th. So we're talking almost a full week of combat here, um, several thousand casualties. And then finally, uh, when the Germans realized they could not drive the Canadians and the British and the Americans off those beaches, there was a bit of a pause. But it was a week of frenetic battle. Mm. And it would continue, as you know, the Battle of Normandy continued until about the 21st of August, all brutal fighting throughout that summer. Uh, Paris liberated about a week later, and then the Canadians continued to push up the coast, liberating uh, Belgium, uh, eventually fighting through the southern part of the Netherlands, and then in 1945, liberating the Dutch. It was 11 months of uh, brutal battle. 
Battle of Normandy cost 5,000 Canadian, they died, but 18,700 casualties. That means yeah. wounded. And, and we forget about that. Those are badly wounded. Today's an important day. Uh, Tim, I, I, nobody knows this better than you, but I, I hope Canadians realize that the battle to commemorate Juno Beach is important because here we are talking about low voter turnout and politics all day. And, and these are the men who gave their lives for that, isn't it? This is, this is why we're here. It is. It is. And I've, I've spoken to veterans all of my all of life, and uh, we interview them at the Canadian War Museum. We, we take their testimonies. And I, I fear that today is, a, today is a good day to reflect on that service and sacrifice and what it meant in that absolutely necessary war, as I've called it, a war against fascism, right. a war that had to be won, a war that Canadians at the time realized almost any burden had to be borne by that generation. And yet they are largely gone from this world of the 1.1 million Canadians who served in uniform, Evan. And that's from a country of 11 million. So one in 10 yeah. Canadians who served were down to fewer than 20,000. And, and I, just before we go, I want, first of all, I want to thank Tim Cook, 78 years on, 20,000. Talk to them, folks. Honor them. You meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Pretty stunning video emerged, and I want to credit uh, um, Robert Jago for it. In Mission, B.C., on the weekend, there was a march called the March for Recognition. It was organized by a group called the Crazy Indian Brotherhood. and. A group of people were marching because of this, some of the issues around residential institutions. You know, I don't call them schools because they are not schools by any definition we would understand. I don't know if your school had a cemetery. Mine didn't. My kids didn't. People were doing a peaceful march. A peaceful march. They were blocking a eastbound travel lane just east of Mission. Police knew about it. And then a pickup truck comes by and hit four people. And the RCMP put out a statement saying, well, we don't think this is a hate crime. They've just taken the person in custody. But when you see the video, you realize this person was trying to hit people. It looks like. We don't know. Garrett Dan, though, was one of the march organizers, and he witnessed it. And so we've decided to reach out to him because is this a hate crime? Were people targeted because they're protesting peacefully? Garrett joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello. Garrett, first of all, can you tell people what the protest was all about? Uh, the protest was about uh, bringing awareness to uh, uh, the the 215 that went missing out in Kamloops. And... Uh, to bring, let people know that the numbers are still going up across Canada. And peaceful march? <clears throat> yeah, it was a peaceful march. Uh, we had it organized. Uh, this is our second annual one. So we did one last year uh, on June 5th, and we did this one on June 4th this time because uh, the 5th landed on a Sunday, and we wanted everybody to have their Sunday, so we, we had it on the Saturday. 
so what happened? Tell tell me about what happened when this pickup truck started to roar through. Well, we were just about done our march. Um, we just had um, our elders were some of the elders were in the back of the line um, because there was a long kind of a long walk for them, and it was hot. So uh, I was driving. I had my grandfather in the passenger seat, and um, so I was I had the water in the back of the truck, and I had somebody handing out water as we were marching, and. I hear gravel getting spit up on the right-hand side of my truck, probably about uh, two car lengths back. And then I see our flagger uh, stopping the guy, yelling at him, telling him to stop. Uh, And he still tried to continue on forward, trying to get around everybody. So, uh, yeah, tell us what happened next. And then uh, after that, uh, he got out of his uh, truck and he actually grabbed our flagger and he was yelling at him and and uh after he was done yelling at him he let him go and then uh he climbed in his truck so our flagger started walking and then um probably about not too long after he drove into my into our flagger who is uh, one, part of the part of our brotherhood so, so when the RCMP first uh, talked about this, it was like an, in, an inpatient driver. We don't think this was racist-based uh, or hate crime. They don't know yet. Um, it, when you watched it, um, was this just uh, was it an accident, or was this guy, in your view, purposely trying to hit people? He was. He was aiming. He aimed for my buddy. He aimed for your buddy. How he bad? Purposely, he purposely hit him. He knocked him to the ground to the point where he had uh, he had his hands were his uh, hands were bleeding and his lip was bleeding, uh, and his uh, lower back and his legs hurt and his shoulder, and he had he actually hit five people. He hit five. How bad? By the way, he apparently within the last hour, do you know the guys come forward? I'm just looking at the mission RCMP, and this is mission uh, British Columbia. But um, the guy apparently has just come forward. But he, how badly hurt were people? Uh, well, enough to go to the hospital to get checked out to make sure that they, they didn't have any internal bleeding uh, or broken bones or anything like that. And And... Talk about he's aiming for, so he's literally trying to run down people in this protest? Uh, Yeah, he told, uh, he actually told our flagger, you know, he's like, he was saying that he's, he can run these guys down if he wanted. What does this tell you about, like, this is a terrible incident. Uh, How, how did your community react? Um, I haven't reached out to the community yet. I haven't had time. I've been doing quite a few interviews, but I talked to a few people and they're, they're scared. You know, there was women and children, elders, and, you know, other people in this march, you know, those are other people's kids, you know, like what gives him the right because he's unhappy to decide to drive through anybody. When you saw the truck driving through, what was your reaction? Uh, I was choked. Because uh, my son was in that march, and I had nieces, I had family members in this march. You know, like to see somebody coming up behind in uh, in a truck wanting to get through just because he's being impatient. You know, there was other people that were impatient, 
they they busted a Yui. There was more than one way to get around. Right. They, they and people yell at you guys like. You know, you've experienced this. You're one of the organizers, Garrett Dan. Like, you know there's going to be anger. I'm not excusing it, by the way. I'm just saying I have spoken to many um, organizers of these things. They get, sadly, racist taunts. There's lots of stuff. This is different. Well, there's, uh, no, there's you get, lots of racial, racial slurs that were saying don't. Did, did you get a lot of racial slurs, too? Um, we, I, like, I heard them from the flaggers. They, they, they heard the, all the racial slurs and stuff. Um, I was in the was in my truck. I didn't hear them, but I heard what they were saying. And um, yeah, there was uh, there was definitely racial slurs that were thrown out. How fast was the truck going? How close to kids was he getting? Um, well, I had my uh, my cousin and my niece right in front of my truck, so mm-hmm. he like he was getting pretty close. And uh, the lady that got out of her car actually had her like like. I think she had her daughter with her and um, he decided to go after he hit Troy. He had my buddy. Um, he, he went around him and he tried getting around again uh, on the shoulder. You think he was trying to kill people? Uh, I can't speak on what he, like what but he, he could have doing. He could have, he, he definitely could have like, you know, like that's uh attempted, uh, manslaughter with a vehicle like vehicular manslaughter like you know like what if he what if my buddy didn't get out of the way and he drove over him yeah now 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 so now what happens how did the rcmp how would you characterize their response um i was definitely downplayed um they uh, they didn't even go see the guy they didn't go talk to him they had his driver's license or his license plate um there's like his vehicle is registered under his him so they could find out where he lives, but they didn't even go talk to him. They they were saying just because he wasn't happy he he wanted to get around the march, right. but you can't go around the march by going through people. So now what are you gonna do? What will the community response be, Garrett Dan? <laughs> well, we're gonna continue doing what we're doing for the people. You know, it's not going to stop us from doing what we're doing because, you know, um, we got to stand up for who we are and, you know, make sure that we let people know what's going on with our people, what happened to our people. And, uh, and it's it's really frustrating to see that nothing happened to him right away because of how many laws he broke doing what he did. And then it, it, it really gets people thinking about why... Why did nothing get done? He he broke so many rules of, right. uh, on the road, and he broke the law by fleeing the scene and uh, hitting somebody. And now, and, uh, and, and only now, he's getting picked up. This is the thing. He was picked up in the last hour. He said he turned himself in. A uh, Garrett Dan March organizer. I'm first of all, I'm, I wish everyone in your community well after this terrible incident, and I wish you well. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. We'll take a break. in your car doesn't have to be time wasted join the evolution of talk radio this is the evan solomon show on the iHeartRadio talk network 
Where are the oligarchs and their yachts? That is the question Alex Finley, the yacht watcher, likes to ask. And she knows where to look. She's a former CIA officer. She's also an author. Her new novel is called Victor in Trouble, just out in April, inspired by her insider's view of the agency and her experience as a close watcher of Russia. And Alex Finley joins us now. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me on your show. Holy mackinac, the yachts. Who knew, right? You knew. Uh, (laughs) What is Yacht Watch? What are you looking for? How do you track this? Why is this so vital? Well, uh, Yacht Watch sort of grew out of my time uh, watching Russia and actually grew out of the book, uh, that I, my most recent book, Victor in Trouble. So um, as I was researching uh, Russian influence operations across uh, the U.S. and across Europe, um, I started really understanding the role of the oligarchs. And the oligarchs really were integral in... Uh, Vladimir Putin's operations to try to destabilize uh, Western democracies. And uh, one of the things that they do, of course, is they they loot Russia and then they they clean and park their money in the West. And one of the things that they most like to spend their money on is mega yachts. So I started sort of following which yachts they own. Uh, I did research for Victor in Trouble uh, about what these yachts look like. What are they like on the inside? What are all of the accoutrements that they have. And so as the invasion was sort of building up, as it became clear to me that Putin was going to launch this war, I started uh, sort of pointing out where a number of these yachts were. I live in Barcelona, so actually a number of them were here. We had four or five, I think, that were here. And uh, and I just sort of started pointing out to people, hey, here's, here's where all of these fancy yachts are. So if we're going to sanction the oligarchs, uh, now here's how you can find their yachts. And that just sort of grew, and Yacht Watch became really popular, and people started helping and and spotting different yachts around the world and where they were popping up even after they sort of went dark for a while. And that's it. It became its own sort of hashtag on Twitter. And are governments watching what you're doing, Alex Finley, the Yacht Watcher? You're a former CIA officer. I would assume if a government's going to sanction Russian oligarchs, they already know where the yachts are, or is this a kind of, no, we've never really thought about tracking the yachts, and this actually is a way to punish oligarchs? Well, I think there's probably a few dynamics uh, at work at the same time. Some of these yachts we, we knew. We just knew that these were owned by these particular oligarchs. For example, uh, in Barcelona, there was this yacht Dilbar, which is the largest private yacht uh, of the Russian fleet. And everybody in town just knew that belongs to Alisher Usmanov, who is one of the Russian oligarchs. So no, some of the, these yachts, it, it's pretty easy to know that. But as we started tracking them, um, more information started to come out that, in fact, these, these, these oligarchs own other yachts that people didn't necessarily know about. So we've discovered, for example, uh, that Roman Abramovich, for example, has more than five yachts, I believe, at this point that we've managed to count. And so there were the ones that we all knew about, but then slowly you start learning that there are others that are in construction or that are in shipyards in different places. And so not all of them are obvious. So once you know to look for something, you can find it. But if you don't know that you're looking for it, uh, that's more difficult, right? So... uh, some of that information, I think, took some time to, to come together. 
Okay, can you tell people, I'm speaking to Alex Finley, uh, also known as the Yacht Watcher. Alex, tell us a bit about, like, when you say these fleet of yachts, how big are these things? Like, what defines a yacht? Uh, you know, how many of them are there around the world? Well, in terms of mega yachts, those tend to be uh, over 100 meters long. So more those than, are like ships. What, 330 feet. Yeah, it's bigger than an American football field. And, um, you know, they cost, you know, we're looking at some of these, we're looking, you know, at 500, 600, 700 million dollars. And they are incredibly extravagant, opulent, high-tech machines. So they have uh, retractable helicopter hangars, anti-missile defense systems. Some of them have their own submarines. Um, But then they have also, you know, a, a spa or a swimming pool that turns into a discotheque. So... They have some pretty uh, incredible. They have uh, they have anti missile stuff like are, so. These things are some, this is an unbelievable. And so, how many have been seized of these things? Like, how, how are the, there are hundreds of these things around? No, so there be a, it's a, this is a very small market, <laughs> and of the biggest yachts, of course, the, the the most owners of the biggest yachts are either Russian or Middle Eastern. So, because those are the ones who have all that money. So um, the Russian yachts that have been detained because of sanctions were at a handful of that, around 12 or 13. It sort of depends on how you count, uh, because some authorities say we're not really detaining it, but we're not letting it go. So then, And these legal fights have started over a number of these yachts at this point. So the hardest part about the yachts is actually proving who the ultimate beneficial owner is. And that's what they're running into now. A number of lawyers have stepped forward for the companies that own these yachts on paper and uh, is, you know, they're defending it and saying, well, the owner is not who you say that it is. And then the authorities are fighting that and saying, well, we have all of this information actually that points to this particular sanctioned oligarch as being Mm. the ultimate beneficial owner. Speaking to Alex Finley, she's the author of Victor in Trouble. And and of course, that sparred her research into Russian oligarchs, yachts and now Yacht Watch. Uh, Alex, tell me a bit about the U.S. sanctioning a company called the Imperial Yachts Management Company. Why is who are they and why is that so important? So Imperial Yachts is based in Monaco, and they are a yacht management company. And they actually manage some of the most interesting of the Russian yachts that we've seen, including, for example, Shahrazad, which many people maybe have heard about now. Shahrazad is a $700 million yacht that has been sitting in Italy. And uh, uh, Alexei Navalny's team did an investigation, and they believe it's linked directly to Vladimir Putin. And in fact, now uh, Italian authorities and U.S. authorities believe that as well. So that investigation continues, but there really is talk that this might be a a boat that was built for Vladimir Putin. Um, So Imperial Yachts was the management company for that boat, as well as a number of others. Um, And uh, recent reporting last week, because the U.S. just sanctioned uh, Imperial Yachts and its CEO, Evgeny Kochman, uh, they believe that Imperial was providing uh, an infrastructure to help uh, feed money to Russian elites. Now, it's not very clear yet what that means. Was this company involved in money laundering or was this company simply building these boats and helping 
helping these oligarchs move their money out of Russia. It's not exactly clear yet, but the U.S. government did sanction Imperial Yachts last week. So I think there's going to be a lot more Hmm. information about that company coming over the next few days. And just, Alex, just quickly, I have you for a couple more seconds. Why is it so important to, to, to know about these yachts? Like, what are these use? Are, is seizing the yachts just a, a luxury item that they'll a bobble for these billionaires? And they, or is there something else? Are they using these things to move their money? I think that they are using these things to, to move their money. I think this is a way of laundering money and storing money. And so while there is the pressure that goes on to it um, uh, by, by taking away their status symbol and their toys, there also really is a financial component that goes into it. And, uh, and as I said, um, you know, these oligarchs really play a, a, an integral role in supporting Putin. And so the hope is you know, that by taking some of this away from them, uh, we may be taking some of the wind out of Putin's sails. Alex Finley, this is amazing. Your work is great. Uh, she's the author of a book called Victor in Trouble. Uh, April 2022 was out. Check that out. But also she's Yacht Watcher, and you can follow her on Twitter uh, and all the latest on the, the oligarchs' yachts. Alex, thank you so much. Just incredible stuff. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Uh, we got to take a short break. Um, when we come back, I don't know, just the person that broke the world's record for most bungee jumps in a day. This will blow your mind or something. Stay with us. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, bungee jumping, everyone likes to do a bungee jump, right? That's a thill of a lifetime, but Francois-Marie Dibon, no, broke the world record. How many bungee jumps can you do in 24 hours? I don't know. The record is 430. What did Francois-Marie do? Let's find out. He joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello, Mr. Solomon. Very pleased to meet you. How are you doing today? I am awesome. I love this story. Let's just get right up with the number, my friend. The previous record was 430 bungee jumps. How many did you decide to do in 24 hours? Well, we decided to go to start by first one jump and see how it goes. So I started with one uh, at 10, 11 past 10 a.m. And we continued until we reached the baseline of 4.30 plus one in 12 hours. Then we had a break. I had some rice and some ham and I resumed jumping until the end of the 24 hours. And the final count uh, was uh, and is uh, 765, sir. <laughs> 700. <laughs> <laughs> so, you had food and you're jumping, doesn't, don't you barf? Uh, actually, it's important to eat and drink. And actually, as your body is on the survival mode, it keeps everything uh, inside. Except that when you are going ups and downs, you can feel seasick. So this is something I've been working on on the technique, on the breathing, on core training, in order to avoid this uh, disconvenience in 24 hours. So I haven't felt any seasickness in the 24 hours. My body was my my ally. And now I have to give back and rest. (laughs) Now tell me, 
Are, now, how, how, did you just love, when did you first decide I'm a bungee jumping guy? Like, did you just love bungee jumping or was it parachuting? And then, like, how do you become a guy that wants to do 765 bungee jumps in one 24-hour period? Well, after uh, actuarial exams, I just uh, did want to refresh my mind, if that makes sense, and try something new 12 years ago. So I chose, uh, I went on the website to see a bungee jump spot, uh, something that was just uh, out of my reach, I had been out of my reach my whole life, but I decided to give it a try. And uh, I really looked into the safety part of each uh, bungee uh, website. So I went there, I did two, and then and I start thinking that I could do that all day. So I just decided to put that statement to a test. <laughs> so, but you loved it. The, do you remember your first bungee jump 12 years ago? Yeah, it was very difficult. And actually, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's very difficult. But I knew that um, it was good for me to get out of my comfort zone sometimes right. and try to face my fear and overcome them. Like everybody, I don't like fear and I don't like pain. <laughs> right. But bungee jumping is not painful at all. But some fear can be involved, of course, the apprehension uh, of jumping in the void because the whole history of mankind has taught us well to avoid this kind of extravagance, of yeah. course. <laughs> so the brains are, are well programmed and they, fear they is are. a good message, but you are not your brains. You can choose to, to ignore your the, the messages that are sent. Francois-Marie Dibon, you, know, you have the world record. Uh, now... When did you decide I'm going to go for the world record, that this is going to be my thing? Like this to me is the moment. When, and how did you train for that? Well, um, it's just an opportunity and people who meet and feel uh, well, to feel good together. Five and a half years ago, I went to Scotland and had uh, the opportunity to go and jump in the uh, in uh, Kilikranki, in the highlands, in this amazing area, in the mountains, surrounded by mountains, in an oak wood above a nice little stream. It's really, the scenery is wonderful. So I saw the guys, I saw the team, very professional. I saw the equipment, very safe, their processes. So I chose to trust it. I did six times, six jumps the first day. I went back two days later, 30 jumps. And then we started chatting with the team saying, yeah, no, let's go serious. At that time, the record was 158, and we thought we could break it. And But, you know, as every project, there were ups and downs, short of stuff uh, locally, and then the pandemic. And then this uh, bungee jump legend, Mr. Mike Hurd, brought really the record from 158 to 430 so we thought yeah that's exciting that's a challenge let's try to let's try to do something about it so it's really about uh, motivation and elevating each other you know i think the best respect you can show to a competitor is by giving your best yeah well you did you almost doubled them now now when i look at the math here 24 hours 765 jumps that's like a jump one every one every what? Like uh, one every two minutes. Yeah, well, yeah, under two minutes. One fifty. Yes. So <laughs> how do you do it? So so you ju- how long does a bungee jump take? Because you have to go within two minutes. You jump and basically in a, a minute and fifty three seconds later, you got to jump again. Well, even uh, shorter because we had some breaks, uh, right. some pauses to to change so the bungee cord at some point. So how do you do that? Like what happens? You jump and then how do you? I thought you bounce around for a while. 
Yeah, yes, absolutely. You jump, you bounce around, and then you stabilize somebody, and then you attach the winch uh, to your harness, and uh, a person, a winch leader at the plat on the platform uh, above uh, retrieves you back to the deck. Then the jump masters uh, quickly and very efficiently check that everything is safe. And only when they allow me to jump, then I would jump. And that's a minute and 50. So are you dizzy? Are you like, by, uh, after, you know... No. Absolutely not. Even no. after like 200 jumps, you're not like, holy mackinac. No, not... nothing. Your back's uh, well, not sore? I, I, your legs aren't sore? Nothing? Uh, at the end of the 24 hours, yeah, the, the hips were a bit sore due to the pressure of the harness. Uh, but the legs were strong. It's just a question of practice. If you practice cardio, core, if you sleep early and you try to eat well, then this is what it gets. Uh -huh. And the alchemy, which is the secret formula, which is the combination between Scottish spirit and some French touch. <laughs> I love it. The alchemy. That's Scottish spirit and the French touch. Uh, yes. Ah uh, yes, they are wonderful people, and I oh, really, so I really, good. yeah, I really love all the Scottish people. Here's they are the lovely. Moment. Here's the moment, François Marie, when when you, you you won. Listen to this. They're singing, "We are the champions." Listen to this. Ah oh, yes. Do we have that? Hang on, we got the clip. This is amazing. What was it like when you were listening to that, Francois-Marie? Uh, this is, uh, yeah, like uh, 20 minutes before the end, I asked the, the team to uh, to put that music on, this very old-time famous uh, We Are Champions by Queens. And I, my desire was that all the team would sing that because it was not about me. It was about the whole team. So it's really We Are Champions. And this, actually, you picked up the best uh, moments in the, this five and a half year of adventure. When I was at the bottom of the, of the jump, and I was hearing the whole team on the platform singing, we are the champion at my 765th jump. Oh. And this was for me the most intense and most moving moment to hear uh, how happy the team was, how happy they they had given so much of themselves into this challenge, even if they have shifted, uh, well, teams have shifted every few and a half it. hours, but yeah. And you yeah. got and the they world did it. record. We did it. Uh, you did it. Yes. François-Marie Dibon, world sir. record holder, 765 bungee jumps. Well done.